Welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Polly. Today's podcast is going to be the third and last part of the questions class from Rock Harbor Fullerton. And the discussion for today is creation versus evolution. I hope you enjoy. Um, and today I'm really excited. This is one of my favorite conversations to have, what we're going to talk about today. And that is the topic of evolution. Um, and there's a couple reasons why I love it. Um, recently, I read a book called uh, You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. It's put out by uh, David Kinneman. And uh, he goes through a lot of different reasons, a lot of different stuff kind of going on within the church on maybe possible reasons why young people are leaving. You know, there's a lot of numbers between, you know, anywhere from 60 to 75, 80% of young people after they graduate high school. They leave the church. Some people say it's not as much, but there is an issue. There is a problem with young people leaving, and so what do we do about it? Um, but in his section on science, um, he talks about that millions of young Christians think and perceive Christianity to be in opposition with modern science. That it's this idea, and in fact, it even uh, one, he interviewed one student, and the student said, I knew from church that I couldn't believe in both science and God, so that was it. I didn't believe in God anymore. And it made me think, is like, are we really, as the church, as Christians, are we really putting out the, the impression that you have to choose either God or science? And partially, I think that sometimes when we avoid scientific topics, we don't want to speak about it at all, then it kind of puts out that idea that, like, science is one thing, church is another, you have to keep it separate. And in this book, um, You Lost Me, he, he makes a statement, he was doing some research, and, said, and he found the conclusion, only 1% of youth pastors told us that they had addressed the subject related to science during the last year. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that churches should change their entire mission approach to address science, but if only one out of 100 youth workers are talking about issues of science, how can we possibly hope to prepare a generation to follow Jesus in our scientific-dominated culture? And what's fascinating is they interviewed students, and about 52% of students said that they wanted to go into some sort of science-related field. And so he said, hey, if 52% of students want to go into some sort of field that has to do with science, but we're never talking about science, we can be giving off this impression that the church and science are in complete opposites. They have to choose one or the other. And um, I think Sean McDowell said it well. He said, um, when interviewed for a 2005 National Study for Youth and Religion, thousands of teenagers who had been raised in religious homes said that over time their faith was slackened and they became non-religious. Why? When asked to explain their loss of faith, their most common answer was intellectual skepticism. Specific answers included, I think scientifically there is no proof. Clearly then, responsible discipleship today requires knowing the scientific evidence for an intelligent designer. And I have found this to be extremely beneficial in discussions. That when working with young students, I, I find a lot of young students that are non-Christians, but they have a high respect for science. And we talked about this in the first week, and we went through scientific arguments for God's existence and to show, look, there is good scientific proof that God exists, but then also there's good scientific evidence that he created everything, that everything did not come about by evolution. And so I find this, um, this, this topic fascinating. I have a lot of students that I run into when, uh, and I talk to them, do you believe in evolution? Yeah, I do, yeah, I do. And then, you know, and we get into these discussions, and it's kind of like, Evolution happened. You can't convince me otherwise. Let's not even talk about it. But after a few questions and kind of getting them to open up a little bit, they finally realize 
there's, wow, there is good reason to believe in creation. And I spent two weeks in my classroom on evolution and found a huge impact in the students when they realized, wow, there really is good reason to believe that God created everything. And so when we look at the evolution, what comes to your mind? If someone were to ask you, do you believe in evolution? What kind of immediately jumps into your mind? Macroevolution, you think of Darwinian evolution. A lot of times, no, I don't believe in evolution. And I think the issue with jumping to that answer immediately, no, is that the evolutionist or the atheist or someone can sometimes make us Christians, I think, look dumb when we jump to our immediate conclusion. And first, we have to always ask the question, what do you mean by evolution? Why is it important to ask the question? Well, there's different definitions of evolution. One definition of evolution is a change over time. The iPhone has evolved from the three to the seven. Clothing styles evolve. You know, the evolution of dance, a funny video on YouTube, have you guys seen that? Right? Things evolve, cars have evolved. So if by evolution you mean small change over time, yes, I believe in evolution. That creates no problem for me as a Christian. Another definition of evolution is small genetic changes within a species. And we see examples of this all over the place. Different breeds of dogs, different types of fish, different types of sharks. I once uh, read an article online. It said, evolution is a proven fact. And I was like, oh, what did they find that proved evolution to be true? And then it said, a new species of shark is discovered. And I thought, OK, that you know, one shark breeds with another shark. You get a new species of shark. That's an example of microevolution. And as Christians, we would agree with this one as well. Think of Adam and Eve. We start with one male, one female, and now we have the human race, that many people that look very, very different. There's an example of microevolution. And so again, if you're talking about microevolution, if you're talking about small genetic changes within a species, I agree with you. And what happens is normally when the person asks the question, a Christian would say, no, I don't believe in evolution. And then the scientist or the other person starts to give examples of microevolution. And then it kind of like, well, you don't believe that the finches' beaks change with Darwin's finches, or you don't believe in different breeds. You know? And they start to give examples of micro, and then it kind of leaves us confused. Now, the last definition, I think, is what most of us think about is macroevolution. Now, macroevolution is large genetic changes from one species to another. So that's where you get species changing from one to another. And so the first thing you have to do is say, well, what do you mean by evolution? Which definition of evolution are you talking about? Are you talking about small changes or large genetic changes? Now, most of the time, they'll respond back and they'll say, yes, I'm talking about Darwinian macro evolution, which then by you should respond with another question. How did you come to that conclusion? Now, I found this question to be absolutely amazing because most people don't know why they believe in macroevolution. Now, they might say, well, the fossils. Well, which fossils? Or the similarities. Which similarities are you talking about? And a lot of times, it's just these kind of pat answers that have been thrown at them. They've been told their whole life, evolution is true based on the fossils, and they just throw that out, and they, they don't know what they're really talking about. And then the last one, when you kind of get, realize how they came to that conclusion, asking another question, well, have you ever considered and we'll look at examples of this. Have you ever considered that it's possibly an intelligent creator, a common creator, rather than a common ancestor? And we'll look at examples of this, but what we need to understand is that when someone says, oh, do you believe in evolution? Our first 
response should not be an immediate, no, God created everything. That's what the Bible says, end of story. But asking, well, what do you mean by evolution? Oh, you're talking about macroevolution. Well, how did you come to the conclusion that that's true? And we'll look at different examples of this. Now, one uh, big example that we're just going to kind of jump off with from the beginning is the Stanley Miller experiment. Have any of you heard of this? Well, the Stanley Miller experiment was an experiment done back in 1953. And uh, Stanley Miller took what he believed to be the early conditions of, uh, the conditions of the early atmosphere, introduced electricity, and he was able to create um, amino acids, the building blocks for life. However, the problem with Stanley Miller's experiment is in 1995, uh, Science Magazine came out and said that all experts now dismiss his experiment, that the early conditions that he thought the atmosphere was like was not really what the early atmosphere was really like. And so they recreated the experiment using what we believe now to be the early conditions of Earth's atmosphere and found out that we do get amino acids, or no, we don't get amino acids, but we get organic molecules we get formaldehyde and cyanide, two things that absolutely fry life. And so this has been rejected now for a while and seen as not true, but the problem is, is this sometimes keeps appearing in these textbooks. And so one thing that you'll see throughout this presentation is that there's a lot of stuff within evolution that keeps showing up in textbooks, and it's either misleading Mis or, or false or kind of like, well, we once thought this, you know, and it, it doesn't really work well, but it kind of shows what we think we want it to show. And we'll see examples of that. And so here's one example that's still taught to classes today, um, but back in 1995, this was disproven or at least rejected by scientists, yet they keep teaching it uh, as if it's true. So one of the two things that we need to discuss when it comes to evolution is that small adaptations can lead to new life forms. Now this is the main kind of argument you'll get is, well, microevolution, you know, different breeds of dogs, is true. So you have small changes in a small time, you, you expand it out to a long time, now you get big changes, you get large changes. And so is that truth? Um, do we get big changes in big time if there is microevolution? So micro to macro. And then another one we'll look at next is the similarities in structure. So first of all, does evolution occur? Where did these dogs come from? Where did these animals come from? Well, yeah, dog breeding, as we talked about, is an example of evolution. An animal breeding with another type of animal does give us a new breed of animal. That is microevolution. And so breeding in a short time can give us lots of different breeds. However, macroevolution is talking about over a long time. Now it's not just different breeds of one species, but now you're getting completely different kinds of animals. And is that true? Now, the question asked is, Wait, but if intelligent people breeding animals meet a genetic limit, we can only go to so far. We can't breed you know, fish with dogs. It's not going to work. The genetics don't allow it. If we hit a genetic limit as intelligent people breeding animals, how can non-intelligence do a better job? It doesn't seem to make too much sense that non-intelligence could do a better job than intelligence. Now, have you heard of Darwin's finches? In fact, I just read an article that was stating that um, Darwin's finches, Darwin didn't really evaluate the finches very much. It was a later scientist that saw the finches and built the whole scientific study around the finches, and then they just labeled them Darwin's finches. But whether or not it was Darwin himself, 
Um, what normally is talked about with Darwin's finches is, well, we have these different finches down in the Galapagos Islands. Some finches' beaks are small, some are big, and we've, we've discovered that during dry years, the, the finches with larger beaks seem to prosper, and they take over the majority. During the wet years, and the smaller beak finches come around, and you have these different, these, these finches show that there's change within a species to help them better adapt to the environment. However, the problem with this is that the change attributed to natural selection is cyclical, not directional. It always comes back around. So as you see here, during a dry year, the depth in beak goes raises, but then as the wet year comes back, it drops back down, and you're always coming back down to about the average. The same thing happens, they'll talk about the changes within bacteria, and that you can get modified bacteria, but the bacteria will always come back to its original. It's always cyclical, it comes back. And what we don't have is a directional adaptation where it keeps changing, keeps changing, and now we get to a new species. Yes, there might be some changes to adapt to an environment, but as the environment changes, it always will come back to its original. But there's one question that this doesn't answer. And I always ask this. If Darwin's finches prove macroevolution, what was the finch before its beak changed? It was a finch. And then its beak changed, and then it became a what? A finch. And so you start with finches, you end with finches, but the origin of the finches is never explained. Now, I've used this with um, evolutionists before, and they say, well, the origin is not the study of evolution. You know, that's what you get into physics and you get into some other stuff of how life originated. We're just talking about how it evolved. But one thing that they, I think it makes it look like is a lot of times they use evolution to show, yeah, this is where all life came from. Well, where did the finch come from? Where did these finches come from? That's one thing that evolution can't explain. They, we can explain how their beaks might change, but they start as a finch, they end with a finch. And we're not getting new life forms. And so microevolution, change within a type, yes, it happens, it's possible, I agree with it. Macroevolution, where you get changes across species, no. There's no scientific evidence for that, and we've not seen it done, and we've not been able to do it within a lab. Well, thank you so much for listening to the first part of the third week of the Coffee House Questions uh, podcast that was done at Rock Harbor Fullerton. Um, I just want to ask you guys, if you've been listening to this podcast and you enjoy it, I, it would mean so much to me for you to go to the iTunes uh, store and rate this podcast. Um, give it a rating so that other people will be able to see it and uh, kind of get the information and, and have them uh, see the case that's made for Christianity. So thank you so much. You've been listening to Ryan Polly, Copy House Questions. God bless. Again.